coming up on The Medicine Podcast. Buddha is interesting because he was a Hindu. You know, there's an interesting parallel between yeah. Jesus and Buddha because Jesus was a Jew and Judaism was this ancient religion. Well, uh, Buddha is a Hindu and Hinduism is this ancient religion. And they're, you know, Buddha's about 300 years before Jesus, so close-ish uh, in the grand scheme of things. And um, Hinduism had similarly become kind of watered down, just like the Judaism of Jesus's age. Welcome back to The Medicine Podcast. My name is Mimi, and I have my partner in life and love and exploration of the cosmos here with me. What is going on, everybody? Extra amped today, we have the author of my favorite book of the year, Original Sin is a Lie. On The Medicine today, Bob Peck, welcome to the show, my friend. So glad to be here. Thank you all. Yeah, this is going to be good. We already had like uh, a tiny podcast worth of discussion before we pushed record. And we are just so happy to have you on and sharing your wisdom and your, I guess, insights and, and what has really helped you in this in this space of kind of deconstruction and then reconstruction, which of course, as we shared with you, we have done over the past, you know, six, seven, eight years. Um, so we're excited to share this conversation with our, our audience, um, who I know a lot of people are doing the same. Our first question that we ask every guest on the medicine is, what do you love in your life? What aspect of your life do you love so much that you wish you could gift it to every human? You know, I think mystic philosophy and spiritual philosophy really has this lightness to everything. Um, it really, there's a word in, in kind of Hindu philosophy called Leela, which means play like a divine play. Um, you know, I think in America, secular or religious, we take everything so seriously. And, you know, it's like our identity and our, you know, just this rigidity around money and job and expectations of relationship and all this stuff. And like, the great thing about the mystics is they're just skipping through the meadow, you know, not in a in, you know, ignorant way or ignorance is bliss way necessarily because they are deeply connected, but um, and and serve and help remove suffering in sincere ways. But um, it's just that balance of I think being attached and detached at the same time, or you know, having love for alongside of kind of it's all unfolding, it's all working out as it is. So I think just. Probably like that attitude. I think that is like been really helpful for me over the last couple of years of all this craziness in the world and, um, you know, finding some sense of peace alongside of the chaos, I think is the, the real, is the real goal. Yeah. Mm, that's so good. That, yeah. Some levity, some lightness. And I think that's yeah. what, that's what gives Jesus specifically, which we're going to talk about a lot today. Yeah. It, it gives him this air of like, sometimes you read passages from him or teachings or parables and you're like, Jesus was kind of a hippie. Like, yeah, totally. I think that's like, what relates to a lot of people. Is absolutely like, agree. Jesus would be my homie. <laughs> <laughs> really, and it's like, you get this lightness, this levity, not in a naive way, but on actually the opposite end of the spectrum where it's like, they've figured something out that I don't think I've fully figured out yet, but maybe you're yeah. on that, you're on the, on your way, I guess. But like, 
I definitely get that. Um, and it's something that we certainly strive for, uh, which is even like counter to the the message, which is like, hey, like just be a little lighter, take it a little easier on yourself and and know that it's you're doing your best and it's working for you. Um, but I, I think that that's definitely something that especially Western culture struggles with is like, I'm, um, this is my thing and this is me. And if, and I have to, I have to take this seriously or else, or else whatever X, Y, Z. Yeah, for sure. Man, we're, we're excited to get into uh, some of the topics that you address in the book today and, and as well as anywhere else we go. Uh, original Sin is a Lie. I want to kick that off with just uh, the fact that this is Bob's book. It is incredible. I devoured it when I heard about it. I had someone send me the Aubrey uh, interview that you did, and they were like, oh, this sounds right up your alley. And I was <laughs> like, I'm already downloading the book. I'm listening to it <laughs> uh, because it just so hit on, on everything that I love about these topics and what, what what I appreciated and what makes this book very unique is one that it's not just one isolated discussion and conversation around a religion or some level of spiritual lane. Rather, it's this beautiful pulse on where culture is at as it pertains to religion, as it pertains to spirituality, and kind of walks us through what it looks like having grown up mostly for most of the Western United States in some sort of Christian backdrop, whether you went to church or not, you're somewhat groomed in the lanes of Christian ethos. And through Jesus, through the church, through the Bible, level, general contradictions, uh, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and then walks us through religions, Eastern practices that we're probably familiar with from a vocab word standpoint, but don't actually right. know from a grassroots level. And then beautifully wraps it up with the 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 state of new age and psychedelics. And so I wanted to at least give that context mm -hmm. to the listener now to say, if you want to go get the book, listen to it, read it, um, I would highly encourage you to do so. You don't have to necessarily to, for the rest of this podcast, but wanted to at least pitch right away. We're going to be talking a lot, a, a lot about some of the concepts that are in the book. I highly recommend it. Favorite book of the year. Um, and with that, Maybe you can give us a little background, a little context as it pertains to your experience, um, your study, and how you stepped into the the point with which you decided to write this book. Well, thank you so much, Chase. It's a really nice review, and I appreciate your sincere appreciation of it. Um, it took a long time to write. Uh, it took about five years, and um, about, I'd say probably a year or so was sequencing the thing. Um, you know, as you alluded to, it really covers a lot of stuff. And, um, you know, for a, for a while there, I was kind of like, what is the order? Like, it, it was a collection of essays, basically, that I had written um, over the years, I would kind of really actually start posting some of it on Facebook, I would say, like, here's Easter from the Yogananda kind of yoga philosophy view, or, you know, here's a piece on the Gospel of Thomas and the parallel to Dao Te Ching, you know, something like that. And um, I looked up and I had like 40,000 words of all these like disparate spiritual things. And um, so I struggled with that for a little while. And then I realized um, eventually that the order is my order. It's the order that I went through mm. to learn all this stuff. Um, right. And so it really starts, uh, you know, to point, it starts with 
Christian upbringing here in America. I'm from Austin, Texas, never left. Uh, was a little kid in East Texas for a little while. Um, but you know, we got Christianity out here and, um, I was kind of saying the book, it was Easter Christmas Christian. So, um, I actually enjoyed it. I liked to go because we went twice a year and um you know it was like the whole family would dress up and sing some songs we had a really yeah. great pastor who was like amazingly charismatic and humble and all these great qualities and so it was really nice and then you know when you're a kid and you sl sleep over on saturday night at your friend's house you got to go to church with the family in the morning on Sunday. Yeah. So I started going to, uh, you know, my friend's very fundamentalist Baptist church as a little kid. And it was very different. And, um, you know, I mentioned this scene as it being like pretty prominent kind of in my story is this little old lady walks up to me. I'm probably eight or nine years old. And, you know, she has a little pamphlet that says, essentially do you want to go to heaven or hell i don't think she framed it like that you know but do you want eternal life you know and it's like sounds pretty cool you know and uh <laughs> right. she's like well all you got to do is say jesus is my lord and savior and kind of almost like sign here on the dotted line kind of thing and um i just remember i mean not you know being even younger than a teenager that how like silly that was to me like it just felt like there's there's got to be more to it you know than that and um she doesn't know it she's probably left her incarnation uh <laughs> but she that was a very important moment for me to kind of start the questioning process and um you know really stumbled into eastern philosophy not long after that my dad is an open-minded spiritual guy and read Thich Han as a kid and Yogananda in college and um went to UT, University of Texas at Austin for, um, actually went for film. And so I ended up getting two degrees film and religion. Um, so I have two degrees that you can't make money with. And, uh, and, um, just really fell in love with, you know, kind of mystic philosophy, the world mystic traditions, this idea that, um, you know, really every major faith tradition has both what's called the exoteric and the ex the esoteric. So kind of the institution and then the mystics or the contemplatives. Yeah. Um, and, you know, once you start to learn that, you start to kind of see, read the quotes, you know, between the men and women um, in the esoteric, the mystic traditions, um, they're not that different. Uh, I think Mr. Eckhart says theologians may quarrel, but the mystics speak the same language. Mm. You know, the, the institutions are the rigid dogmatic they're the ones who go to the wars and you know uh create the the environments of fear and and, and control and so on and the mystics are, are you know the mystics are kind of floating around they're they're uh they're they're pretty great and and over the millennia uh the institution really had issues with the mystics we're kind of in this interesting you know chase mentioned new age you know we're entering we're entering into this you know new chapter in civilization where you know the institutions can't kill the mystics anymore <laughs> they have to they have to deal with us now um you know as human beings and so that's an interesting moment in time but uh but yeah really just inspired was inspired by the mystics and kind of started to write all this stuff down and 
um, you know, draw connections and, and um, yeah, uh, happy to go into to any more detail there. But I, I will say that the initial, the original subtitle of the book was it's now it's, I think, How Spirituality Defies Dogma and Reveals Our True Self. The original subtitle was, uh, original sin is a lie and other truths from the spiritual buffet line. <laughs> because that's really kind of what it is you know it's yeah. like hey here's just here's all this different good stuff try that try that you know see what resonates with you and your heart for sure it, it wasn't until i discovered mysticism and, and a mystical perspective <laughs> to christianity that i was able to have any sort of reconciliation um with the religion at all yeah. and even though without mysticism you can still find some beauty in the orthodox religion of Christianity, it was a bridge back to even having the openness of heart to be able to see that or accept that when I when I did take uh, an unbiased look at at the religion that that I was brought up in. So so let's jump into yeah. Christianity. Um and just starting off with this original sin is a lie idea. You know, what does that mean? Uh, maybe defining a little bit of original sin, uh, why it's become so prevalent in Christianity. And uh even if you're not raised a Christian, maybe why you're impacted by that idea? Yeah, great. It's a great question, and you know, I will say too. I think I mentioned this, but just to be clear, a, a buddy of mine messaged me recently. He said, "I'm so glad the whole book wasn't about original sin being yeah. a lie." Yep. You know, because the title is a little misleading in that he was like, "I thought you were just going to do 300 pages on this concept," and and you're, that, you're it's really just guy, the beginning. Right? Yeah, well, it's a it's a double take of a title, um, but yeah, you know, original sin is a lie. It's a it's a concept from um, Augustine of Hippo or Augustine. Um, he was a very powerful uh, monk, essentially in the uh, fourth century. He um, he kind of was a one of the first kind of born again guys. He he had a kind of crazy young life, and you know had this repentant theme throughout his kind of theology and um you know original sin he's reading admittedly he is reading paul and genesis so he's taking he's interpreting genesis and paul but he's centuries after jesus and um you know augustine was essentially in a dispute kind of historically with this other monk named pelagius and so Pelagius said, we're originally neutral. We're not originally sinful or originally divine. We're kind of the, the, the median, which is very much in line with Vedic thought, Hinduism. Uh, you know, Indian rishis have been saying things like that for a long time. And, um, you know, essentially Augustine won. He had more political power. He was savvier, et cetera. And um, Pelagius was exiled. And Augustine was made a saint. He's one of the most famous saints in Christian in the Christian empire. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of modern Christians have this idea that it's just this divine chiseled, you know, stone. Hey, we're originally dirty and Jesus is the blood ransom for our, uh, you know, for, to, to, for our salvation. And, um, and I realize this is very personal. So forgive me if I'm a bit cavalier here, but, you know, it's personal for me too, because in my view, um, you know, I think Augustine and, and aspects of Christian, the Christian institution have distorted the message of the master, you know, and that was really what, um, Bible scholarship school, I'm, 
again, I have a bachelor's in religious studies with a specialty in formative Christianity. I don't call myself a Bible scholar. Um, I, cause that's more of a master's PhD. I'll say I'm a student of Bible scholarship. I'll take that title. Um, but you know, as a student of Bible scholarship studying in academia and then personal study years later, you know, what I really found guys was he's great. You know, the closer you get to his teaching, Jesus of Nazareth, um, it's as good as it gets. I mean, it's really, you know, he, he delivers on the hype. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is quite a bit of hype, admittedly, but he's, he's right there. And um, it's the later institution. It's guys like Augustine, um, even Paul in some ways. Um, but, you know, very early on, it becomes sectarian. It becomes, you know, it gets very political, even in the first century. You see that by the different gospel portrayals. Um, so that was, that was so um, captivating to me was, you know, you mentioned kind of the baby and, and the bathwater, you know, I think so many modern Americans that grew up with some kind of Christian upbringing, you know, basically said, this is weird. This is, you know, or worse, hateful, you know, abusive and so on. Um, I don't want anything to do with this, you know, and, and I honor that in some way. And I think that also is the product of trauma, but um, so sending peace to that. Um, but, but a lot of my work is saying, you know, wait a second here, you know, there's aspects that aren't so great. Um, let's be really clear about that. But there's some really redeeming um, and even transformational teachings in there um, that I'm happy to, uh, you know, articulate. Yeah. And, and speaking of what Jesus said, what's actually in the Bible, which is the backbone to the entire faith uh, religion itself, where does original sin come from? Does it come from the mouth of Jesus, um, or is this something that Augustine developed based on his own interpretation? It comes mostly from Paul. It comes from uh, a line or two in Romans, which is Paul's letter to the house church in Rome, um, a couple of decades after Jesus's death. Um, you know, and if it, I've kind of been saying this a little, um, not to be too edgy, but you know. It is what it is. I've said on a couple of podcasts, if anyone could find me the red letters that say we're originally dirty, shoot me an email, bob at originalsinisalie.com. You know, let me know because I haven't found it. Um, what he does say is Luke 17, 21. He says, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Um, you know, it cannot be observed. You cannot say, look here, or look there for the kingdom of heaven is within you. Um, you know, that's, that sounds like it come out of the Upanishads, you know, I mean, that's um, Buddha nature, the inherent state of humans in much of the Eastern traditions is divinity or Buddha nature in, in Buddhism's case, right? So, um, you know, it's, 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 it sounds antithetical, it sounds opposite, not, not only is it different, it's like, basically the opposite, um, you know, and I go into more detail, but, you know, even for example, one of the best parables in the Bible, which is the parable of the prodigal son, um, no matter what the son does, um, you know, he spends all the father's money, he kind of wastes it all, that's what the word prodigal means, he says, my father won't accept me, but I got to go back to him, maybe I can be a hired hand, and the father runs to the son and says, you know, you were lost and now you're found. You can't escape 
the love of creator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't escape it, you know? Yeah. And so it's, that, that's, that's a teaching from Jesus is mm-hmm. that you are beloved. You are worthy. Yeah. Um, and it's so, just so original sins, a yes. big old lie guys. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that something that's, that's coming up for me, um, for, for anyone who maybe didn't grow up in the church, original sin in short, is the the idea that we're taught in the church from a from a very young age really is that you're yeah. born into sin because Eve ate the apple. We all every human is cursed with this sinful nature and you right. can't is you can't escape it similar to what you're saying you can't escape the creator's love. We're kind of taught from a young age that you can't escape the sinful nature no matter what you do. You're always going to be, you know, needing to ask for forgiveness even if you're saved, you still need to ask for forgiveness because we have this sinful nature. And uh, you know, that 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 line born into sin. Um, I, I mentioned to you before we pushed record, admittedly, I haven't read your book yet. It's on my list, but Chase literally got done with it. And he was like, we have to interview this guy. I was like, okay, I haven't read it, but that's okay. <laughs> because I have read other mystic type books that, that do deconstruct this notion of original sin, namely Matthew Fox's book, Original Blessing. And I told you this, that this book literally changed my life and my view on some of these very fundamental sort of dogmatic teachings that I grew up with. And I remember one idea or one line in that book, he, you know, created this visual of like anyone who has been in the presence of a baby, who in their right mind, a joyful, happy, or not even happy, just a baby and all of their innocence, who in their right mind would say, yep, that baby's sinful. No, we say this baby is a blessing. This baby is joy. This baby is innocence incarnate. There is nothing that this baby can do that's wrong. We all know that up here, you know, or or maybe we know it here in our hearts. Right. Our heads get in the way where we're like, no, it's still, you know, still sinful, nat- sinful nature. This person's going to grow up and be sinful. They just haven't, they don't have, the consciousness isn't there, I guess. But that line, you know, thinking about a baby, it it, it just clicked for me, and and from there, I was I was convinced there was no other like convincing mm. that needed to be had for me. It was like, yep, that's truth. That lands with me. We all know this. Anytime you're around a baby, the only thought is this is a this is a blessing. This is not a sin a, a creature that's just bathed in sin, right? Um, Abject purity. Thoughts, yeah. yeah, that's beautiful, and that's a great image. And and um, you know that there's a lot in what you said. And thank you for contextualizing too, because sometimes I kind of just jump to oh, people understand what original sin is. Yes, it's the idea that you know Adam and Eve and the apple, and now we're cursed. And um, Augustine again back to him he's the guy who wrote that we really we need to baptize children babies as quickly as possible in case they die uh, i mean that, that's from him still yeah. you know it's really does come from him um and matthew fox it's it's interesting that you're that you're calling him out because guess who was excommunicated yeah <laughs> from yeah. catholicism um by by uh the former or the late now pope benedict when he was a cardinal cardinal benedict excommunicated matthew fox um so anyway uh so my heroes are typically the ones kicked out of the <laughs> the machine um yeah. and then you know yeah and I, and I will say some people have 
commented on some of my work online where they've said, you know, Christians have no hesitation responding to some of my stuff. And that's fine. Um, you they know, have no let's have a conversation to, to respond to some of oh. my oh, work yeah. online. Yeah. Um, you know, I get, I, mostly I have appreciative, open-minded people. That's the, the vast majority of people who, you know, follow and engage with me. Um, but I have, I basically have like maybe 10% angry Christians and 10% angry atheists. It's kind yeah. of a funny little like... <laughs> 80% open yeah. most people and then the two extremes. But, um, you know, one thing Christians have said to me is, oh, humans are, you know, he's like, have you met one of us? Because we are not so great, basically. Um, and, you know, it's an important point in terms of kind of the problem of evil. Um, if we're not originally sinful, where does it come from? Well, in the Eastern philosophies, they say, we're, we're ultimately, we're just ignorant of our true nature. That's all. It's just that we don't know ourselves or we've forgotten that that's a common theme in mystic philosophy that we're just remembering mm-hmm. who we truly are, you know, and so we're kind of deluded right now. We're deluded by material phenomena, which is incredibly stimulating and um, designed to polarize and so on. Um, so we're just undoing that. That's all. Yeah. It doesn't mean everything is perfect and we're all, you know, that this is kind of divine place necessarily because the mystics don't say that either. Um, but um, but I like that idea, you know, and, and there's an image polishing the mirror, yeah, which is polishing the mirror. That's all. There's some blemishes on it. Chipping and away po- dirt around the diamond, the different facets right. of the diamond exactly. exist within us. Yeah. Exactly. I like that mirror because it's, reflecting of yeah. the light yeah you know yeah. which is what we are so yeah no it's it's uh i definitely don't necessarily think we're or 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 no i, I just love the position of don't know but <laughs> right, step, right. stepping into this like we're blessed and originally maybe that leads to some slippery slope of narcissism down the road or if it's this state of neutrality and it's this state of potential like it, it yeah. we step in with potential in the same way that we're born healthy, unhealthy, generally healthy, somewhat neutral. And depending on the environment and the choices that we make, we can either get unhealthy and become healthy or, you know, orient ourselves towards health sooner rather than later. And so maybe it's just potential, right? Right. I I think where it gets slippery pertaining to sinful is that we step into life and develop consciousness. And if if you walk through the path that we did in the Christian church, you are immediately told to stifle your intuition because it is inherently sinful and it's inherently bad. And so if it's not run through or articulated by the Bible, the church community, or the pastor, it is for you to deny. Hey friend, I wanted to change the subject for just a minute to read something really important to you. This is feedback we received from a woman named Kelly, one of our amazing users of Immune Intel AHCC. She says, So I've been taking AHCC for a little bit over a month and my skin has never looked so good. I am 35 and have suffered from hormonal acne since I was a teenager. I thought I would never get rid of my acne. I just had my period and I have absolutely no pimples around my chin or jawline. And my melasma is finally clearing up too. 
I have tried countless prescription and over-the-counter medications and have seen so many dermatologists with little improvement. Also, I feel like my hormones have balanced out. I am less irritable, as well as less inflammation going on in my body, decreased back pain, and bloating. I'm so glad I came across you on Instagram. Thanks for sharing the knowledge. Okay, here's one more, just because they light me up so much to share with you. This beauty is staying anonymous. She says, I learned about Immune Intel AHCC from you on a podcast, and in four months, it helped clear my persistent high-risk HPV that I've had for seven years. I love these two testimonials next to each other because it's a testament to the balancing and normalizing effect that AHCC has in each individual body. One woman was supported with her acne flares and the other had support in clearing her high-risk HPV. I am consistently amazed by the power and intelligence of AHCC. To try Immune Intel for yourself, go to themedicine.com forward slash products, or just check the show notes below. Cheers, my love. And you get so upside down as it pertains to your own intuitive nudge towards fucking everything. It can be from your food choices all the way to your personal passions and the things you want to pursue for your for yeah. your livelihood or who you love or who you love or your own sexual physical desires and interests which then when you when you stuff them down we know the byproducts of compartmentalizing something to the degree that it's not exercised at all and that can be everything from taboos that turn into kinks that turn into violence distortions of something that originally if it was just naturally expressed probably could have been beneficial um and it also well said. or it pivots into something that is the uh the the projecting of perfection it's the the virtue signaling and it's the mm -hmm. guilt shame flogging oneself to only guilt shame and flog others and so it can just take yeah. all of yeah. these different distortions when it's been shoved down this far and in the community that we came from man that was just just rampant mm -hmm. and kind of leading into my next question the reason why it's so fucking scary to think that you're sinning all the time is because another quite prominent core tenet of Christianity is that if you don't find salvation, you will burn in hell for eternity. And so maybe can you unpack hell and how uh, in your study, you've maybe not necessarily seen a whole lot as it pertains to uh, the articulation of hell, even in the Bible? Yeah. And I mean, just kind of those two components that you mentioned are so disheartening to me that so many millions of human beings are walking around dealing with those. It's like, it, you know, it's just like, we have a lot of work to do, right. guys. You know, I mean, it's like, okay, uh, I'm going to make a thousand TikToks. Um, <laughs> the, yeah. I can do it in 2023, man. Just if one person, then it's worth it. If one person yeah. is like, oh, I can actually listen to the, the voice in my heart. Um, yeah, it's really sad. And it's, you know, I think institutional mainstream Christianity, you know, American Christianity in many ways has just become this diluted, watered down. There's a great image. I, I definitely want to get to hell. There's this great image um, from Brother David Steindl Rast, who it's not in my book and I'm 
annoyed that I found it after because it's so great. Um, he says, all religions start from mysticism. He says, there's no other way to start a religion than from an authentic spiritual experience. He says, what happens is it's like a volcano. When the volcano explodes, it's this vitality, this force of nature that's so impressive and that you can't deny. transformative. It's undeniable. And what happens is the lava flows down the mountain and starts to cool. And after a century or 20, it's just dead rock. Mm-hmm. What wow. was originally lava is now, you know, and he says his mm-hmm. religions are like that. And so, and that's, that's true. That's what happens. That's why you have all these splits, all these schisms and so on. The original man or woman who connected was a profound, you know, oneness, vesselhood of spirit of creators, whatever you want to call it, source. Um, and then over time, it just loses that little by little. And so it's up to every person and every moment to continue to, to make that connection. In terms of hell, yeah, there's a, there's a chapter called Hell is a State of Mind. Um, it's toward the back of my book, um, In Original Sin is a Lie, out now. Um, <laughs> um, and I go into greater detail because I'll I'll give the 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 TLDR here with you guys um, in terms of the scholarship. But yeah, I mean, basically, you know, I think step one is understanding that the word the English word hell um, is a translated word from other languages. So what are the what are the original words? Um, well, in Hebrew, when that word is is hell in English. Um, typically in the Old Testament, it's called Sheol, which you guys have probably heard of in the Christian community, S-H-E-O-L, um, which is uh, not clearly different because, um, as I reference in that chapter, um, an old king, I believe it's Samuel, is called up from Sheol, and he's kind of irritated. He's like, why did you bother my rest you know, he's like consulted by some medium or something. And it's like, well, if this was a beloved king, what was he doing there kind of thing? So it's different. Um, then there's another one. Hades is the Greek word for kind of what the hell image, this medieval creation of that fiery place um, is tied to Hades. Um, and, you know, What's interesting, too, about the Christian religion and and really Judaism, even at that time, because Jesus was a Jew, in that period, um, in the Hellenistic period, it's called, Greco-Roman world, there was a lot of borrowing. There was a lot of exchange of ideas. It was a really beautiful time in, in human history in some ways, because there was this very interesting exchange, you know, of cultural ideas and concepts and so on. And, um, you know, scholars, historical scholars, Bible scholars are, are quite clear that this image of hell, um, you know, Greek mythology essentially predates it. Um, and it, 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 the, the gospel writers, um, those early Christian writers were extremely versed in that mythological, those mythological frameworks. Um, I specifically point to um, Plato has a, a story called the myth of Ur. And that's really where we get um, this kind of lake of fire image, um, as well as Orpheus. Orpheus goes down to Hades to try to save his lover. Uh, so there's a lot of crossover with the Hellenistic images. 
Jesus um, uses this word Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A, so there's in Aramaic. So there's really three, Sheol in Hebrew, Hades in Greek, and Gehenna in Aramaic. And um, Gehenna means the Valley of Hinnom. It was um, an area outside of Jerusalem. It was a uh, trash dump, basically. It was like a landfill. And, um, you know, admittedly, there were sacrifices centuries prior. I'm not going to talk about the nuance of that image or that that word and that location. Um, but most scholars and certainly the mystics are content to suggest that he's really using it as a metaphor for, you know, you're in the landfill. You know, I mean, in, in Aubrey, on the Aubrey show, he was like, uh, your thinking's garbage, kind of, you know, I mean, it's like, that's the closest uh, like analogy. Like the gutter. Yeah, your mind's in the dumps. You're in the gutter, exactly. And, um, you know, it's, it's grown into this massive thing. Obviously, uh, Revelation didn't help, um, which is extremely historically unreliable in terms of its proximity to jesus is much much later um and um paul talks about um you know the kind of what i call referred to earlier as the blood ransom you know this idea that jesus is the the debt being paid jesus himself doesn't talk about any of this right. you know um this is all the stuff that comes later and you know a part of it, I think a lot of Bible scholars also talk about, which I don't necessarily talk about in the book, but Bible scholars are kind of pointing at the fact that Jesus following Jews are, he was killed, you know, he was killed, he was brutally murdered, and they created a lot of this around him, um, you know, in terms of building up his image. And it's a shame because the teachings speak for themselves to me. You know, it's like, love your enemies. You know, that's that's why we're still talking about it today, I think, is because he, he was so radical in terms of his teaching about unconditional love. Um, we're not loving our enemies now, you know, let alone in the Iron Age. Um, you know, uh, his, his he, he forgave his killers. I mean, I think that's really the most... Um, profound, one of the most profound messages of Jesus and, and, and one of the most sublime yeah. moments in human history, which is forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. If you can, if you can be brutally, humiliatingly murdered as an innocent man and sit there and up there and forgive your killers. Yeah. Congratulations. Well, you've broken the veil. <laughs> right. Which is this, this is where, you know, we can take something like that. Uh, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Of course, he was being murdered. He was being killed at this point. And, but this is something that we can take into our lives. And even though we might not be, in, be, you know, we might not be killed by someone or, or threatened physically, but there we can look at this like, I'm going to treat this person kindly because i know that they are unconscious to what their behavior might lead to or how it's yeah. damaging others it's almost like an exactly. unconsciousness to the the downstream effects of your behavior and it's you kind of take on this um this 
I don't want to say higher road because that's so cliche, but like a little bit where you can just like forgive and see the the childlike innocence inside of them that also in you and like, yeah, they just, they haven't, they haven't figured it out yet. And they, you're zooming out, you know, yeah. To use your, to to use that idea, you know, you're zooming out on this grander picture. Yeah. If we all get that, just that one teaching where it's like, shoot, they, they don't realize it yet. Damn. Okay. I'm going to forgive them in my heart or I'm going to release them from any judgment that I I may have held prior to this. If we all did that, literally the world would change over overnight. And that's just one teaching. Especially if we removed the the boundaries that we have on this life experience, that we are subject to the 70 to 90 years that we're on this planet in this meat suit. And to zoom, to be able to zoom out, even in just that that time period that we're familiar with, expand that to multi-lifetimes, multi-experiences in, in various meat suits with various, uh, you know, diversification, like that empathy and compassion just, just expands to, you know, even further degrees. And that's another, that's another cliche that, that we get trapped inside of in Western culture is like, you've got this one life to live. And, uh, especially in Christianity, it's, You've got this one life to live, and if you don't get your scorecard to be <laughs> to the degree that you're going to get to heaven, yeah. you burn in hell for eternity. And, and so, I think just like well, some of the biggest life changing moments for me were when I was in college, and and I, we grew up K through kindergarten through uh, high school was all evangelical Christian school, and I, I got to actually a Presbyterian college, and we studied world religion and and. Um, the whole curriculum was to develop your epistemology and, uh, it was pretty open. There was no like, you know, steering towards Uh Christianity. Yeah. God forbid. (laughs) And, uh, I just was like, what if hell's not real, man? What, what if it's actually not real? And the whole, a whole, your whole vision opens up and this Mm -hmm. realm that you'd blocked called sin starts to look pretty freaking exciting. And don't, <laughs> don't get me wrong, you can go too far. And there's yeah. there's absolutely going too yeah. far. But there's a lot that's defined in that realm from Christianity that's that's quote unquote sinful. That's pretty damn exciting. And it's pretty fun <laughs> when you put your foot into that space. Not only fun, but just feels better in your body. Like, hey, I'm going to treat myself kindly. I'm not going to flog myself with judgment and shame every day. I'm going to speak into myself. That would be considered... Yeah pride in the evangelical christian world which is you know top three biggest sins is pride and and you know this puffing up of self where really now in our life we just call it like i'm going to be kind to myself i'm going to speak into i'm going to speak life affirmative sayings into myself so it's like it doesn't have to be all the crazy stuff it's even just the little minutia of how we speak to ourselves totally I definitely want to leave more to be desired from the the Christian conversation. Um, so everybody check out the book. There are some specific cases and, and I'm hoping you can highlight maybe the one that really stands out to you or maybe the one that grinds your gears the most because you go through a, a host of different, maybe historical contradictions, some inaccuracies, if you will, as it pertains to the compilation of the Bible, the dating, the age, the misconceptions people have as it pertains to the Bible itself being this inerrant, without error, works, divinely inspired 100%. Is there one, as you put together your uh, research and compilation of this book uh, under the, the domain of Christianity, that really stands out as this like contradiction that just 
drives you crazy. Like I feel like I'm on crazy pills, Will Ferrell from Zoolander moment. <laughs> sure. Yeah. There's a few, uh, you know, and admittedly, um, well, Bible scholarship the last 150 years has really mapped every letter and comma of these documents. So we really understand what's going on in them. These, the diagrams in some of these textbooks are unbelievable. Um, they do what's called horizontal reading as, as opposed to vertical reading. I'm sorry. Scholars read vertically humans lay people read horizontally so what that means is when, when you're a christian you read the bible you start it let's say the four four gospels you start at matthew and the birth narrative and you end at the end of john you just read matthew front to back mark even though mark's earlier they put matthew before because of the birth narrative anyway matthew mark luke and john front to back and you say oh it's all you know sounds pretty similar jesus is walking around teaching he has a miraculous birth, he has a crucifixion, etc. Um, what Bible scholarship does is they'll take the same event in multiple Gospels, which most events aren't in all four Gospels. Most are only in two. Some are in three. Almost none are in four. Um, and the, one of my favorite examples, and, and compare the differences, basically. They say, hey, this is the same event, same teaching, same plot point, etc., how are they different? Why? So, so that's why we have different characteristics of each of the four gospels. And so that's kind of Bible scholarship 101 is really understanding, like, you know, like I said, my, my experience is mostly with the four gospels of the New Testament, the synoptics and John. Um, you know, this is the same for the, for Paul's letters. I'm not as well versed on the Old Testament. It's just had it wasn't a draw for me, but, but sticking with the New Testament for now. Um, you know, we have what's really Bible scholarship calls it like, for example, the Markan Jesus, which is the Jesus character in Mark, the Matthean Jesus, the Lucan Jesus, and the Johannine Jesus. So that doesn't mean Jesus of Nazareth isn't a real person. In fact, it's extremely historically likely that he did walk the earth. Um, but the four gospels have different portrayals and different characteristics. And so I talk about this a little bit. I try not to be too heady. It's like a mystic buck of love, but I, there's some of this in there. And um, my favorite example kind of of like the distinctions between these, these events is the condemnation of the Pharisees. So I'll give, I'll give the condensed version, which is um, in three gospels, in Mark, Luke, and Matthew, um, Jesus calls out the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were a, another sect of Judaism. They weren't the temple Jews. So the temple Jews were the Sadducees, um, who were kind of the religious authority with the temple. Um, the Pharisees had a level of authority, um, but they were not as much tied to the temple and they weren't associated with Jesus. They were kind of like the, I'd like to frame it like they were kind of like running for mayory kind of energy. Um, they were very concerned with the public and the crowds and kind of the politics of the day. And, you know, Jesus kind of, as a wandering mystic throughout the countryside, kind of uses them as an example of religious hypocrisy. He says, hey, one of his teachings is he says, when you, when you fast, when you're spiritually fasting, wear bright, colorful clothing because it's an internal practice. Don't be like the Pharisees who wear, when they're fasting, they wear tattered clothing, 
and try to gain sympathy from the crowds and gain, you know, adoration for their spiritual feats, wear bright clothing and don't tell anyone that you're doing it because it's for you and God. It's a divine process, which yeah. is a beautiful teaching, you know, and it still applies today quite uh, quite tactly um your social but, media plant medicine yeah. uh it's extremely it. relevant to 2023 <laughs> and iphones um <laughs> totally um and so that's kind of like an example he, he, he's poking at them essentially um in mark it's the shortest you know I, there's a book actually up here called gospel parallels um where it has columns of each event and so you can literally read the mark inversion the matthew inversion the Luke, you know in each of these and uh mark's the shortest it's very brief um luke's is a little longer in matthew he goes off i mean it's like two pages and then you flip it and they're empty in the other columns because there's no comparison it's only in matthew um in matthew he calls them he really just lets them have it he says he calls them you den of vipers which is a pretty mean thing to say yeah. Come on, for dude. someone who yeah. forgave his killers, for someone who said, love your enemies, for someone who embodied, you know, kind of what we call, use the term Christ consciousness, you know, this unconditional love. Wait a second, den of vipers. Um, and so Bible scholarship also does this thing where it, it understands where the gospels were written and to what community. And so um the the reason for this is because the Matthean gospel is written in Galilee. So Matthew's gospels, it is very Jewish. Jesus is concerned about the law and the prophets and what's to come. Um, whereas in Luke, he's not as concerned about Jewish laws. He's more concerned about the poor. Um, we know that Luke is written outside of the Jewish homeland. So the Luke and Jesus is he's mostly talking about money uh and the Gentiles and um the Matthean jesus is much more jewish and the reason is because matthew is also written in um post-temple judea so what happens in 70 69 71 rome sacks the temple in jerusalem which is extremely brutal um, and this is super important for people to know in, in terms of if you have any interest in Christianity and the Bible, you should know that the temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was sacked, blood, rivers of blood in the street. It was this horrible massacre of Jews um, who who were who had this uprising essentially, and then the Roman army came in and they just destroyed. And so the Jews are in this similar to the Babylonians several centuries prior. They're in this kind of post existential mourning. You know, it's this awful period. That's when the Gospels were written, guys, yeah. in that period. And so um, the Matthean uh, author, let's say, well, we'll say Matthew, even though scholarship says the Matthean author. A anyway, um, the person who wrote Matthew. The reason that Jesus goes off on the Pharisees in his Gospel and not the other Gospels is because now that the temple has been sacked, there are two very powerful Jesus, or I'm sorry, Jewish sects. It's the Jesus following Jews and the Pharisees. And so the author is using his main character to throw dirt on his competing political 
group and religious group. He want they wanted the the all of these existential questioning Jews to read the, his gospel and say, "Oh, these guys are no good. We should follow them." So it's it's very human. It's very political, um, and it has nothing to do with Jesus. And it's as early as the first century. Mm, wow! It, it's it's so it makes so much sense when you when you look at it through various layers of context yeah george washington's face has been used in a host of different ways sometimes legitimately sometimes out of complete fabrication for mm. a particular agenda you can say the same right. thing about martin luther king jr you can say the same thing about michael jordan i mean i grew up as an athlete and depending on what camp needed you know what coach what, what story you're needed it's what like, he did and said right and so it's like it's so human nature to understand this and if if it's if that's just understood and we can lay, look through this thing looking for what resonates as factual where that's necessary or at least just mythical story and archetype that resonates great but if we start to just take this thing from every t that's crossed and i that's dotted to literal Jesus, we're going to be like walking through contradiction maze galore. I know. I can't help but think, I've said it so many times, but I can't help but think if Jesus, you know, was here today in 2023, looking around at like all, you know, throughout history of what people have done, quote unquote, in his name or in the name of God or the Father, or whatever, he would just be like, oh my God. Oh no. Oh no, no, no. This is not at all what I meant. Um, but I, there, there's a part of me that if he was an enlightened master, which obviously I, I believe that he was, um, this enlightened teacher here to show us um, a way of living, an ideal way of living, how we approach ourselves, the divine, and each other, and the earth. I have to believe that, uh, at least I believe that he had some inkling some like feeling probably that his teaching could be used in the way that it has been where it's like for human gain to tell a specific story that it's going to get warped into something that's dogmatic and completely different than what I was talking about but like curious of your thoughts like are these spiritual teachers like saying these things knowing that they're going to be twisted for human gain centuries later Hey friends, did you know that the amount of muscle you have on your body is directly related to overall health and longevity as you age? Generally, people who have a healthy amount of muscle have lower rates of chronic illness like cardiovascular disease and diabetes and are better equipped to deal with acute illness like the flu. This is why Chase and I support the concept of muscle-centric medicine. To build healthy muscle, we need quality sources of protein. In addition to our quality meat, Chase and I also use protein powder to ensure we are getting enough protein each day. Our two favorite protein powders are the plant-based Organifi protein, which is organic, non-GMO, and glyphosate residue free, and the animal-based whey protein by Keon, which is non-GMO and comes directly from grass-fed, pasture-raised cows with no antibiotics and virtually lactose-free. We love and use both daily in smoothies, stirred into yogurt, protein pancakes, and even baked goods. Getting adequate amounts of protein helps us feel satiated, build healthy muscle, recover faster, and maintain optimal body composition year-round. 
To try Organifi's plant-based protein, go to Organifi.com and use the code MIMIFIT, M-I-M-I-F-I-T, for a hefty 20% off. And for Keon whey protein, go to getkeon.com and use the code MEDICINE, M-E-D-I-C-I-N, for 10% off. Or just check the show notes below for the direct link. Cheers to muscle-centric medicine. Yeah, it's a deep question. You know, um, well, it's it's a nice uh, and Chase teased reincarnation earlier and kind of the Eastern view of things, which is like a huge part of my own spiritual perspective. And so, you know, in in uh, the Bhagavad Gita, which is a very holy text in Hinduism, um, it's a conversation between Krishna and Arjuna, Christian. Krishna is a divine being. Um, he's a king. He's a Christ-like figure. And Arjuna is his uh, cousin, who's an archer. And they're, they're, they're on the battleground. And um, it's the whole book is just their conversation right before this war. And that's where we get what's called the Avatar Doctrine. We get a lot from that conversation. But the Avatar Doctrine is um, something I write about in uh, the book. And, you know, to your point, you said you think Jesus is an enlightened master. I agree. And I I, I consider him an avatar, um, which is essentially the highest. It's the highest attainment that a human can have. And, and then there's some theologians kind of, sometimes argue like it is the avatar does the avatar descend from on high or do they ascend from the human brain i don't know you know i don't know yeah. but all i know is they are the best and um they're they they gave up their individuality even it, they're not the best from like a egoic standpoint they're the best because they're they're nothing you know what I mean? They, they, their emptiness and the wholeness. They, uh, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. You know, when you give up your own individuality, you just become a pure vessel for the divine. That's the avatar. So everything the avatar does in their life, in their incarnation, is just like they're just, they're just walking through this. They're unbound by the chains of this plane, unlike the rest of us. And, um, you know, I think. What Krishna says in the Gita is he says, um, when wickedness uh, takes over, basically, I rise. I rise to set virtue on her seat again. So whenever there's chaos and suffering in the world, kind of to your question, there's a manifestation of the divine who appears in different places in time, in different cultures, in different communities and periods um, in order to you know, educate and reform and, you know, do so all of it from this place of love and oneness and unity and connection. Um, and so, you know, when, when you lean into ideas like that, you know, it's okay. You know, it's all right if people misunderstand. And I, you know, you even said that earlier, maybe about like, everyone's just doing their best. You know, if you can forgive your killers, you know, it's like, if you can see that everyone is just reacting to their own experiences, their own traumas, you know, we're all just carrying around these briefcases all day long. Some are bigger than others, you know, but it's like, if you can just see everyone 
that, you know, and appreciate them for like working through it. Um, I think that's what all of these masters are kind of helping us to realize. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. a lot of us are just handed sort of from birth. Hey, this is what we believe. Yeah. This is what our family believes. This is who right. we are as a family. We go to church or we go to mass or we go to temple or whatever. It's like, you almost feel like you don't really have a choice when you're a little kid. And until there's an impetus to start questioning, which some people never really have because it's like, Hey, life is pretty good. I got community. I feel pretty yeah. good in church. And right. like, this actually feels pretty good. There's no reason that I'm feeling from within to start questioning this thing that I've been handed from birth. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're middle-class suburb kids from the nineties and uh, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it was privilege and it was comfortable and it was safe. And yeah. it took until we were out on our own to fuck our own life up, to start to actually ask the big questions, but it took a while, you know, it took us to get into our twenties. Yeah. Something that's become a practice for me is to not just completely dunk on Christianity without coming back to a little space and time for highlighting. And, and we've done that a little bit, highlighting some of the things that Christianity just just totally gets right. You know, we've talked a little bit about unconditional love and the prodigal son story. I mean, even when I left Christianity and spent years walking through attempts at scientific materialism and, and sort of landed on agnostic at, at, to a certain point, I would still get these verses that would ring through my head. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Yeah, I was going to say, Sermon on the Mount is pretty much all you need. To be honest, you know? <laughs> and yeah. it's like, okay, there's something here and there is something about this, even if it is a, a story, but there's something about this carpenter, this mm -hmm. humble guy, this this person who decided to quite literally die in grace and in love publicly through the most you know pain that, that a human can go through. And, and even if this all, is all story, it has resonated and it has stripped the most narcissistic egoic individuals to their knees in some level of surrender and so there's something here right there there's something really beautiful here in all of your study in what you've looked at what really is a highlight for you pertaining to christianity that people can look at with with reverence and should quite literally look into deeper yeah, it's a great question. Well, I mean, yeah, I think the, the greatest hits are love your enemies, um, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Um, the Sermon on the Mount has some great stuff, too, that I love, where he says, um, like, the stuff about um, just, like, why worry? It's like, it sounds kind of like mindfulness and, like, Thich Nhat Hanh, and, like, I feel like I never really heard that one in church, even though I went never, so don't listen to me about that. Um <laughs> And oh, and and also, I'm like s frantically scrolling through my Jesus faves. Um, also, uh, the least what I want you to release these is huge for me. Um, which can I read that one? He says, yeah. um, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and we get choked up and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you at sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of these to these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Mm. Um, so what he's saying, you guys get this, you're deep practitioners, but he 
he's he's given up his individuality he feels a complete oneness with all beings and so what you do to anyone else you do to him and they think you know kind of coming back to the mystics and the christian contemplatives you know that's that's a practice that they have kind of seeing christ in every person you know if you can you can see go to the gas station and give the guy a 20 dollar bill and see jesus <laughs> you yeah. know i mean and that's and that's not that dissimilar from you know what's called uh bhakti yoga in hinduism devotion path of devotion seeing the divine mother you know and every woman and every woman that's there's an aspect of the divine mother in them and so you walk around and you just you know these guys walk around and just kind of bow all day you know it's <laughs> like they 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 get it that's uh that's an avatar's teaching so um so yeah i really honor that and i'd love to you know even in my own experience um do what you just did chase in terms of saying honoring the christian path i do believe even though my book is called original sins lie i do believe christianity is a valid path to god um and i do think the bible is a sacred scripture and um you know there are some christians in america that are doing incredible work and i um i write about it in the book but I, i've done food bank work for many years and these and most of it has been at a methodist church done some of it with yogis some with christians and um those christians are doing they're living matthew 25 35 to 40. um you know not everybody is and you know it's a complex it's a nuanced topic but um you know it's a real honor to go to that methodist church and see those guys scooping up mashed potatoes you know for 300 homeless men and women um, because they're seeing the christ in those people and they're feeling you know and that's a beautiful service so deep bow to that practice yeah yeah no doubt i mean i mean you can experience health through crossfit you can go to a crossfit gym you can partake in the exercises and you can right. experience a version of health that is so much more profound than you ever thought was possible you can also do the same through traditional uh resistance training you can do the same thing through spartan racing through cardio you can experience health through these different modalities and protocols in the same way that I, I'm, I'm very open to the idea that you can experience god you can experience some sliver of divinity at, to a greater capacity through the mechanisms the protocols the rituals of these various faith traditions or religions if you will and and then i i think that makes a good transition into something so unique about this book is that it's a little bit of a preview into these other traditions my journey i know many others who've gone through a journey similar to myself you grew up in christianity you have some moment of of bitterness you realize that you do not uh, any longer associate with the the faith or the religion you leave you get caught up in uh sam harris scientific materialism you trickle down the road of stoicism <laughs> you probably land somewhere atheist scientific materialist agnostic but you and then you might even have a, a moment through psychedelics let's say and then you get interested in spirituality new age but you've missed this little window of some of these eastern traditions these other mystical realms that are in a lot of ways the, the backbone to new age but have have skipped and so you get the corporatized versions you get yoga at the yoga studio you see buddha literally everywhere you go that where you get acupuncture or massage get your nails done nails. chinese chinese restaurant <laughs> yeah. right 
if you go to Burning Man and you've you've Mike. got you know little transactional experiences in someone's tent uh, surrounding some ancient Buddhist practice, uh, some Zen practice, but it's like yeah. you've accumulated vocab words. You can maybe uh, pick at the guitar, but you have no idea how to read the music. And so I would love a little elevator pitch because I'm deeply curious on a deeper level behind some of these traditions. And you highlight specifically in the book um, Buddhism, uh, yoga, and, and Hinduism. And so, and I know that th those have been powerful for you. I would love to just like pitch to us these traditions and why we should look a little bit deeper. Yeah, they're really great. There's a, there's an amazing book called um, American Veda by Philip Goldberg, um, who who writes. I think the subtitle is From Thoreau to the Beatles: How Yoga Got to America, or something like that. And it's about kind of Indian philosophy from the American lens historically, and it really was um, Emerson and Thoreau got basically the first English copies of the Gita and the Upanishads, these Hindu scriptures in the middle 1800s. And they're reading them going, this, this is it. You know, the, the, you know, the ideas in, in, in ancient Indian philosophy is, is that the divine is, is within you. <laughs> the kingdom is within you. Um, you know, the Atman is the Sanskrit word for essentially soul and Brahman is the, or Brahman, um, is the Sanskrit word for the one, the creator. Um, and there's a very complex theology, Hindu, there's no such thing as Hinduism proper, um, because it's so varied. Uh, the Indian subcontinent is huge and there's been Rishis teaching different nuanced versions for 3000 plus years. Um, but yeah, you know, Emerson and Thoreau read that stuff. I'll come back to them. They, they, they read that stuff and they said, this is the spirituality that America needs, mm. which is fascinating to me because in that period and still, as you guys are remnants of this, you know, the Mayflower and the pilgrims and stuff, they were Puritans and they were essentially, you know, American, Christian, Europe, you know, European exiles who, uh, what's it, centers in the hands of the angry God. You know, it's like this terrifying, you're little and weak, and um, this angry God, the jealous God of Exodus is um, going to crush you and so on. And, you know, and meanwhile, at the same time, this kind of American ideal of infinite potential, uh, to use your word earlier, Chase, you know, this this potentiality of, of infinity, of endless expanse of land of you know the the new world all those all that kind of which is not not black and white either it has uh, negative effects um from that belief of course um historically as well but but some of that's good and um i think the the vedas and the hindu philosophy was an interesting um parallel to a lot of that kind of american uh you know, sense of itself. And then, of course, uh, Vivekananda comes in 1890. Vivekananda was a master uh, who was a disciple of Ramakrishna. Yogananda comes in 1920 in Boston, just had his centennial, his arrival. Um, and so Vivekananda and Yogananda are kind of the first two swamis in America. And then um, you have a bunch of swamis come over in the 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s. 
and then now there's a yoga studio on every corner but it, it was it's a nice book i'll just happy to point people to american veda if they're interested in the american lens of that um but yeah otherwise you know hinduism i think is is um uh, what i say in my book is that it's a very exceptionally profound foundation for spirituality because it introduces a lot of these concepts like dhyana which is meditation uh, like the atman which is soul kind of the eternality of the soul um samsara which is this idea of reincarnation it's called the wheel of samsara so this idea that we're kind of all going through on this round and round and round throughout all these incarnations we come from brahman come from god we're here on this cycle until we go back to genderless god um and there are all you know there's all these misconceptions about hinduism which i write about a little bit you know i think the the most common are like there's a million gods yeah or, you know oh they're polytheists or they're pantheists all this stuff and it's a lot more sophisticated than that you know i think it's uh i like the term masks of the one so every divine figure in the hindu pantheon is just another mask of one of brahman kind of behind it all um, there's this concept in uh, i believe it's charles hart sorn alfred north alfred north whitehead these kind of western philosophers who called um they said no they're, it's not pantheist it's panentheist p-a-n-e-n and that little e-n after pan um signifies transcendence so pantheism means god is in everything but the little Ian panentheist means God is in everything and beyond everything mm. in everything that you can uh, see, touch, feel, et cetera, in your senses, as well as beyond. And, and that's a common theme, again, kind of back to the mystics, the ineffable, you know, the, the, the idea that the, you know, there's all these kind of adjectives for God and you need all of them and they still don't get it across. You know, there's this, you know, it's this, you can't, you can't describe and with form uh, is a common theme. Um, but yeah, man, Hinduism and yoga and and, and, and then Buddhism. Um, Buddha is interesting because he was a Hindu. You know, there's an interesting parallel between yeah. Jesus and Buddha because Jesus was a Jew and Judaism was his ancient religion. Well, uh, Buddha is a Hindu and Hinduism is this ancient religion. And they're, you know, Buddha is about... 300 years before jesus so close-ish uh in the grand scheme of things and um, hinduism had similarly become kind of watered down just like the judaism of jesus's age um you know again kind of back to that i guess the volcanic metaphor right that happened to those guys too and um the buddha was he was born a very rich prince um, kind of the opposite of Jesus in that sense, but um, he was sheltered by his father, but who was a Hindu king. And um, at, the story goes that him, uh, that the, his father, Buddha's father, was uh, talked to a famous astrologer or something, you know, a Vedic seer, and they said his birth chart of his heir was that he would either become a great, and powerful king. Or that he would become an awakened man, an enlightened being, uh, then monk. <laughs> and he said, Oh God, I hope he's the king. <laughs> and so he they basically made his life very um 
kind of like astroturf, you know, like everything in his life was perfectly manicured and he had women and wealth and riches and all this stuff. And, and he would even like go around in carriages in the village and the attendants would like run ahead of him and like clear the way. So it was perfect. It was just like this bizarre thing, kind of like Truman Showy. Yeah. And, um, and then he, it's called the four sites, which I write about. I'm going into great detail here, but anyway, oh, this, he, this he perfect. leaves. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, it's called the four sites where he saw a sick man. Finally, he saw, uh, an old man and he saw a dead man on his, like the attendants missed some people. And he was like, what, are, what are those? You know, life isn't perfect. There's suffering out here. And then he saw a monk. And so the fourth site was kind of this potential of breaking those three. And he uh, famously leaves the palace at night and goes off and um, becomes a kind of wandering sadhu, a wandering Hindu monk. And he almost dies. This is a big part of his story, which is that he starves himself and he's sitting there in nature and he can't even move pretty much. He's about to die. And, you know, he's he's an avatar so somehow miraculously someone comes by and feeds him or whatever and and um he realizes ultimately that um neither one are are correct it's not worldliness of his wealth and his father's riches and it's not complete abandonment of the uh hindu ascetics it's the middle way so one of the kind of uh, terms from Buddhism is the middle way, he, the, the moderation of the evenness of life. He says, he gives the example in his own teachings of a guitar string. If it's too loose, you can't play it. If it's too tight, you'll pluck it. But if it's the perfect uh, moderation, that's the, that's the note you want, baby. And um, so he's great. So Buddha, you know, he's also reforming Hinduism in a sense. And so I write about those parallels a little bit about Jesus kind of reforming Judaism and Buddha, yeah. uh, reforming Hinduism, but, but the, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism have some overlap. They have some conflict. Um, but I'd say, I think for your listeners, if anyone's interested, you know, Hinduism tends to be more godly. There's more devotion generally in Hinduism. And whereas Buddhism is more, so if you kind of liked that aspect of Christianity and you're searching for kind of a devotional, passionate, spiritual experience, Hinduism is great. Buddhism is not as much like that. Buddhism is more focused on practical meditation, detachment, um, and kind of that moderation, that mindful living. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard. Uh, thank you for that explanation. It was beautiful and, and perfectly articulated. And thank you. Um, it, it's great to get you know context as an adult, um, even though we've heard some of this, but just getting the context because it's so wild to go back to my little brain in fourth, fifth grade, hearing these words Hinduism, Buddhism, and thinking that it was like witchcraft. <laughs> Yeah, and, yeah. Or, or the same thing. You, you know, guys have so much undoing to, you know. There, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know you've been doing it for a long time now, yes. but yeah, it's like yeah. The, it's just, it tangled up, and so it's just like this. It's, I use that uh, word all the time. I'm unraveling, yeah. untangling. Mm -hmm. You know the the sort of like indoctrination and the teachings of like, oh, you can't look at that. That's that's devil worship, and so you grow up and you're yeah. like. Okay. A lot of people worshiping the devil out here. <laughs> and then you realize as an adult, you read one book or talk to someone like yourself, right. or listen to a podcast and you're like, oh, 
actually this thing that I thought was witchcraft or devil worship when I was in fourth grade is all about loving people more. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Anyways, it just this real. My, my my goal is to be the guy in the hot tub, like where y'all are like, they're like, don't the hot tubs to the devil. And I'm the guy in the hot tub being like, no, it's nice. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. cool. Like, come on yeah. in, actually. Like, it's fine. You don't have to, you know, but yeah. if you want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. All right. Real talk. If you're anything like me, finding quick foods that are actually healthy and intentionally sourced is not the easiest task these days. Take something like jerky. 99% have added sugars, preservatives, and are sourced from conventional, non-organic farms from stressed and possibly diseased animals. Yikes. Okay, what about protein or granola bars? Oftentimes these bars have way more sugar than protein, and the protein itself is usually bottom of the barrel, cheap, and low quality. We used to have the hardest time while traveling, like what the heck are we supposed to eat when we need something quick? Then I discovered Paleo Valley. Hallelujah! Chase and I's favorite when we need something convenient, like during travel. The beef or turkey sticks and superfood bars are literally an answer to my prayers. They are made from real whole foods with no added sugars or mystery ingredients and are super delicious. Even kids love them. Get this, Paleo Valley sources their meat and their bone broth protein exclusively from organic regenerative farmers. The animals are pasture-raised, grass-fed their entire life, and the farmers themselves are practicing regenerative farming. This means that they are actually healing our Earth's soil rather than killing it and stripping it like conventional farms. I feel so good knowing that I'm blessing my body with high-quality foods and supporting our Earth and future generations by supporting Paleo Valley. If you want to try for yourself, you can use the direct link in the show notes to check out Paleo Valley and use the code MEDICINE, that's M-E-D-I-C-I-N for a discount, or just check them out in our medicine cabinet at getmimifit.com. We're bringing you only the best, boo. Cheers. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful for this context as an adult. It's just, it's, um... It's just wild how how we are taught, and we just we're like, oh, okay, okay. Just handmaid's tale yeah. energy, yeah. you know. It's like, yeah, and it comes from the fear. It comes from. It's like if if they look into any of this stuff, then they'll leave, you know, or or worse, they're traumatized and they're carrying that same. Right, they really believe it, which is probably yeah. the case for a lot of folks. In yeah, that I guess when I. But, I, I didn't say I started to say and then went down a rabbit trail is like Buddhism, at least how I understand it is not necessarily a religion, which is what we were taught where it's like this devil worship religion. It's more of like a way of being way of thinking sort of like a thought framework of how to like go through life rather than a set of religious sort of beliefs. It's not like, oh, we're praising, you know, it's both. I would say it's both. OK, uh, happy to clarify yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in, in the same way that Christianity is not a monolith, Buddhism is not a monolith. You know, uh, they not only are, and I was even talking about Buddhism being kind of secular and agnostic and athe atheistic in some 
capacity in some branches of Buddhism. Tibetan Book of the Dead, for example, is there's a rich levels of uh, devas and saints and spirits and astral realms and lower realms and complex cosmologies and things like this. That's not my expertise, but I'm aware of like versus like, and that's in Tibetan Buddhism, there's all these like levels and layers and accomplishments and demigods. And in Zen, in Zen Buddhism, it's like, what's the Alan Watts? It's like Zen isn't uh, washing potatoes while you're thinking of God, Zen is just washing the potatoes. Yeah. You know, it's like you're Zen is just this beautiful, like almost psychedelic appreciation of the present moment. I think that's kind of what you are alluding to mm-hmm. in, in terms of kind of the Western con- conception. A lot of Zen is Zen is kind of like the uh, foundation for like mindfulness and like modern mindfulness in American concept. And so that is true. And I think it, you know, I think you can absolutely be like a Christian with Buddhist practices, you know, to your yeah. to your point of it not being religious. I think that's absolutely true. And at the same time, there's a there's institutional Buddhists that are just as I mean, and this is I think I do mention this in the book, which is in in Myanmar and Burma, there were Buddhist armies. That were killing Muslim refugees. Wow. So Google that one, guys. Buddhist death squads killing refugees within the past, I think that was about five years ago. So, or, or uh, more recent. So, um, that's a great example. Uh, I mean, it's a terrible tragedy, but it's a, it's an example of the nuance of all these systems. Yeah. Well, you know? at, the, at the end of the day, if you are, allowing and enabling an authority to define divinity and connection to your higher power for you, you'll totally. always be subject to manipulation and indoctrination. And in the same way that Correct. we can let other people define health for us, but if we don't feel healthy, we're not, it's not health. And I, I use fitness and health as analogies to see the world. Unfortunately, this is the bro way that I have to <laughs> shit out. Hey, <laughs> Use use what works for you. There are many paths. There are many paths. There are many paths. Yeah, um, I see that bicep. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, we've got, and I'll speak for Christians coming coming from my own background. We've got a God the Father is the higher power creator God, and yeah. uh, we've got the Son who is the salvation for our sins. If you believe in Christianity, if you're more of a Hebrew maybe something more traditional Jewish, you would just I, I see God the Father, but in Christianity, you see Savior being through the, the Christ figure and your consistent connection to that Christ figure and thus connection to God through the Holy Spirit, which is this spark of, it's almost like you've, you've, you've got this uh, cell phone line that you're able to connect to God through and or Jesus through because it's in you. Yeah. I like to tend to think that that's a spark of divinity, that Jesus yeah. maybe was even hinting at the fact that we're all part of the divine through the Holy Spirit. But a, but a more traditional Christian would suggest that it's more like this communication channel that's been opened up for you to access. Almost like God's messenger that's in, going in between. Right. And so our purpose, yeah. we, we've got... Extremely the, mystical. Right. <laughs> right. 
we've got this orientation of God, Son, Holy Spirit, and then we're here as the sinners doing our best in this, you know, 60 to 100 year lifespan to make enough connections, to ask for forgiveness enough that we can get to heaven, defeat evil and, and avoid hell. And, and that's kind of the Christian cartoonish version of, of how humans and God and div the divine exist. Now, in this realm of Hindu and Buddhism, how is God defined? How is, is there salvation? Is there such thing as salvation? How do you interact with the divine? How do you evolve such that you can get to heaven, if that's even comparable? Yeah, it's great question. Um, yeah, I think kind of just expanding on the earlier um, intro, you know, um, Atman and Brahman. So I write about it in the book. The four principles within Upanishadic thought are as follows. Um, I'm not going to pronounce the Sanskrit. It's not my specialty. Okay. I'll just say uh, consciousness is Brahman. Um, there's another one. Aham Brahmasmi. I am Brahman. The third is Tatvam Asi. That thou art. You are Brahman. You are the ultimate reality. And I am Atma Brahma. This self is Brahman. Um, so it really does have a lot to do with the relationship between Atman and Brahman. Um, in some sects, they're perfectly equal. In others, the Atman is a part of Brahman. And to others, the Atman is like the body of God. And Brahman is like the soul of God, almost. Um, you know, again, I mentioned the wheel of samsara, which is this idea that we're all on this kind of carousel of lifetimes. We're cycling through this series of incarnations until we undo our true, our ignorance and realize our, remember, realize our true self, our true inherent nature um, by defeating or undoing or transcending this ignorance that's a regaining of infinity that's the breaking of the wheel um yeah i can read you some krishna says uh, weapons cannot shred the soul nor can fire burn it water cannot wet it nor can the wind dry it the soul Atman, is unbreakable and incombustible it can neither be dampened nor died. It is everlasting in all places, unalterable, immutable, immutable, and primordial. Knowing this, you should not grieve for the body. <laughs> there, there's a there's a very pronounced in both Hinduism and Buddhism um, undoing of body identification, which I think is extremely valuable. It's extremely un-American. Um, and it's, you know, it is, it is at odds with institutional and exoteric Abrahamic religion. Um, and kind of coming back to, I'd say, exoteric and esoteric within Christianity. Well, what is the esoteric in Christianity? Well, I think we might have used this word earlier, maybe not, but your audience is probably familiar with the, with the word Gnostic. That was probably one that Mimi's church leadership told her was devil. Yeah, yeah. don't talk about the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostics. Um, so kind of, you know, back to the first century in um, the formation of the New Testament, the Gnostics are there. They're right there. Um, they're as early as the formation of the NT. And this is, um, Elaine Pagels is 
the master scholar on the Gnostic. She, she wrote a book called The Gnostic Gospels. She's written a few more, but um, that's a great little intro if you're interested. Um, and the Gnostics were not um, a, a monolith either. They had variation. This, that's, that's a newer idea for me. I think that the fact that there's variation within Gnostic spirituality is, oh boy. Um, but essentially what they were saying was very interesting and in, 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 uh, similar to Eastern in some ways, similar to Jesus' teaching in some ways. Basically what, what Marcion said, who's a Gnostic teacher um, that I write about, he said that looking at the verses of the Old Testament, I am a jealous God. The God of the Old Testament tells these kings to do some pretty awful stuff uh, in some places. And then you look at what Jesus says about the Father. God's love falls on all, just like the rain. Um, Marcion, I believe, is the first person to suggest that Jesus is actually talking about a different entity than the God of the Old Testament. Um, and so within Gnostic cosmology, there's this idea, which is not, again, I'm bringing this up kind of to parallel some of the Hindu stuff, but um, the idea that the God of the Old Testament is actually kind of a false creator God called the Demiurge or Yaldabaoth. There's a, I, there's a lot there, but just from a Eli 5 standpoint, and that's the God of the garden. That's the original sin guy that trips humanity. Whereas there's this kind of beyond transcendent, undefinable, formless love. Sri Teshwar says ever new joy that's beyond this world and even the creator of this world. Um, and that's interesting to me, you know, um, I think there's, there's more to it than that, but, um, that's a helpful image, I think, in my spirituality to understand that, you know, I think even taking kind of Hinduism a step further and mystic philosophy a step further, there's this idea that this world um, is doesn't have the solidity you think it does, right? And this is kind of getting towards the end of the book. Um, they're within mystic sects and certainly with Really, Hinduism is kind of where it starts, but there's a sect within Hinduism called Advaita, A-D-V-A-I-T-A, um, which suggests that um, this, this world is a dream, or it's an illusion. Maybe you guys have heard, you know, I'm sure you guys have, but your audience, you know, the idea even that some some modern physicists and some computer engineer philosophers are starting to suggest a simulation you know this idea is not new um, to the mystics um, that this kind of anything that's transitory or temporal is ultimately unreal so that kind of aligns with the gnostic view of this false creator god that aligns with this hindu view of this wheel of samsara this carousel um, of kind of unreality, um, and, 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 and back to that idea of like distancing yourself from body identification, um, from my vantage point where I am in August, 2023 in Austin, Texas is Bob, the author. What I'm working on is, you know, what Jesus, <laughs> back to Jesus, this is be in the world, but not of the world. So what I'm, that's what I'm working on right now is how can I 
be as engaged as possible while at the same time zoomed out and just accepting the paradoxical nature, the beauty, the chaos, the love, the suffering, and just seeing it all unfold and all transpire, you know, not from a place of apathy or indifference, but from a place of the observer, you know, the observer mind is a term also from Vita. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I'm so with you, brother. And that's so refreshing to hear. Like, even in this more this Gnostic idea and and what sounds like even in realms of of Hindu and Buddhist ideas that you, you can get to this spot where you real you realize or you think or you feel as if the movie The Matrix is actually reality. Right. And it's just, it's really, really kind of rattling to your entire physicality. And it's so easy to fall down into apathy, into nihilism, into this idea that there are blood-sucking overlords that are keeping you trapped in a slave simulation. And I realize that that's a little hyperbole, but it... I know that this steak isn't real, (laughs) but... (laughs) And, And it's like, it's trippy just to unhinge that far. Mm-hmm. And the safety of religion and the safety of Christianity, especially, is low key one of the uh, enticing reasons that humans cling to such belief systems. Because to be so unhinged and having all potential reality, even to the potential of being in some sort of simulation, is so unnerving to the ego. Yeah. The unknown is, can be. To some, I think, maybe to all, like unnerving, frightening, anxiety-inducing. To say I don't know in 2023, especially in America, is like, it's like sacrilege to say, I don't have an opinion on this. I don't really know for sure. It's like, you're supposed to have an opinion on everything kind of kind of deal. And, and, yeah. and it's, it's not just yeah. in 2023. This has been a history of people that know and the unknown can be scary and chase said that earlier and i I love that you know i don't know yeah it's like okay god forbid that's a good yeah yeah Yeah. what courage right (laughs) and and so it's just refreshing to hear that because i i've been looking for ways to just even articulate what i'm supposed to be doing how i'm supposed Mm. to be doing this feeling like i find a little bit of resonance with every single camp but at the end of the day feeling campless and yeah. feeling oh, yeah. feeling purposeless because I want I, I'm groomed. My my neural <clears throat> pathways are groomed for a checklist, a to-do list. I can execute, dude. Just somebody tell me what to do. I can nail yeah. it, I can crush it. I'm I will achieve it, but there is no playbook. <laughs> let's uh let's go there. This is great. This is really great stuff. Um, thank you guys for sharing too. That that's a there's a real vulnerability in this, and and hopefully it's practical. We're kind of pivoting from the philosophical to the practical. Um, and I have a lot of thoughts and, and references mainly to, to point to on this, which is, you know, one of my, uh, the teacher I write about in the book, actually, Richard, the medicine man said, um, he said, don't get into spiritual indigestion. Right. So there, there's almost like this period, which I think you guys are maybe finishing, you know, I think you're, y'all are kind of in this era of like, you went to the buffet, you tried everything, you know, and now well, that's what I'm hearing now is like, which one did you like the most? Um, yeah. Ramakrishna says, 
you can't find water digging many shallow wells. Mm. You dig one deep well, and that's where you find the water. Um, so it's almost like kind of in that act one, act two, act three, act one is like religious upbringing and difficulty. Act two is like breaking away and exploring the breath. And then act three is like the depth of, you know, one or two systems that really resonate with you, um, you know, kind of back to Hinduism and really back to its practicality. I've been talking about its theology, but Hinduism's practicality lies in, in my view, in its universality. So it talks a lot about, um, I'll give you two really great images. One is um, the four blind men and the elephant. So uh, this is like my favorite image ever. Um, there's four blind men in a village and an elephant walks in to the village and um, the first blind man comes up. They don't know what the animal is, the being is. And the first one feels the trunk of the elephant and says, this being is like a snake. And then the second uh, blind man feels its leg and says, this, this being is like a column. The third feels its tail and says, it's like a hose. Fourth feels its ear and says, it's like a, a tree leaf. And they're all arguing. And then a woman with sight, let's say, a person with sight comes in. Uh, some of these are all like men characters. So I like saying, mixing it up. Anyway, a, an awakened woman comes up. There's no shortage. Uh, comes up and says, actually, um, the trunk is like a snake. You're You're right about that. But that's just one characteristic. Mm -hmm. The leg is like a column. That's true. But that's just one characteristic. The, the, the being that you guys are all arguing about is all of those. And there's more characteristics that you can't even, that you haven't even felt or seen or tasted. So that's all the religions. That's really all the exoteric religions. That's what all these institutions are arguing about. They're arguing about the snakeness versus the columnness of God. Yeah. And the awakened persons. No, it's all of them. But you're right. It is that. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it's a great, there's so much in that. Yeah. Um, and the other one that I wanted to mention was, and it's even simpler, which is kind of to Chase's point, which is Ramakrishna. That's a Ramakrishna parable. He also says this one, which is there's many ways to get to the roof. You can climb the wall. You can go up the stairs. You can use a ladder. You can jump from the fence. You can climb a tree. All of those people are going to get to the roof, but they're all different ways to get there. That's, that's really what Hinduism is to me. Um, and leading into, um, kind of back to the philosophy, I guess a little bit, which is it's called the yogas. So, um, you know, and, and what the Western traditions don't really have this. Yeah. especially not American Christianity, which is, um, it's, they're called Yana Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, Karma Yoga, and Raja Yoga. So there's four. Um, Yana Yoga, those two parables kind of illustrate the, the way they think about this stuff. So Yana Yoga is mental. It's all about intellectual. It's called self-inquiry, actually. It's where you you just undo, you meditate for a while, you undo, you know, kind of earlier, you detach your identification with the body, you, um, you see your, your Atman as a part of Brahman, you it takes time, it takes incremental work, and it's analytical, 
It's for a certain type of people. The second group are the bhaktas. So bhakti yoga is devotional. So that's the person that sees the face of Christ on the cashier. That's the dancer, the poet, the artist, the, the people in church that, that are really feeling the emotions in like a profound way and crying and things like that. Those are bhaktas. That's the second path. Third is karma yoga, which is service. So that's like the food bank people or, you know, really just people who serve other people. And then fourth is Raja yoga. It's kind of like a culmination of all of them. Uh, it's kind of the avatar is kind of a Raja yogi. Um, but, you know, I think to the question around like, what do I do? Which one do I go into? Um, you know, it, go into the one that is the exact resonance with your heart, with your soul, with your psychodynamic needs, you know, that undoes your trauma because they're all valid. They're all unique pathways to the divine, to the undoing, um, you know, to the remembering, to the remembering of the true self. Um, but they're all, they're all different. And I think what's funny kind of about the image of like, for example, the Yanis and the Bhaktas is that like, the yanis look at the bhaktas and they're like, what the heck are they doing? Dancing around? They're crazy, you know? And then the bhaktas look at the yanis and they're like, these guys are so cold. They just sit there, you know? It's like, they don't, that's how they see each other on the surface. And so Hinduism has these, a much more sophisticated um, openness to the, to the variation that I really honor. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that explanation. And I, uh, just for the listener, we're using the word yoga a lot. And correct me if I'm wrong, but in this sense, it's it's more of uh, not the you know traditional Westernized yoga of you know. Sorry, yeah, spiritual path. path. It's yeah, spiritual path practice. Like it's it's this word that embodies like it's a it's a practice. You're going deep in one type of spiritual path, spiritual practice, not the necessarily standing poses yeah the postures yeah which are which are practice yeah yoga means union in sanskrit and so and there's an patanjali's yoga sutras the yoga teachers listening will know this but there's a um text called the yoga sutras of patanjali he talks about what's called the eight limbs of yoga and the asanas are just the third limb of eight seven other ones so american gym yoga you know kind of to you guys' earlier point is it's great and i'm a big fan and i love uh going and doing you know i have my little personal practice and i support my yoga teacher pals and it's beautiful um and also at the same time it's kind of its own thing it's it's separate from or it's it's at least it's it's become its own thing in in terms of separate from that term so thanks for the clarification yeah yep yep so I'd love to go, you know, from the religious buffet to maybe the um, food court uh, in the mall <laughs> uh, and, and, and unpack new age a little bit. How do you define this? You're kind of in a Mecca uh, in Austin <laughs> yeah. of this world. And, Look who's and talking, SoCal. <laughs> I know, right? Well, I, I moved down here and, and again, was in my, I was a corporate finance accounting and got briefly introduced to it down here in the health and wellness community. Yeah. And then after a psychedelic experience, open just my eyes to all of the possibilities. And the, the food court analogy and, and the buffet analogy is so perfect because it was like Harry Potter meets the things that I liked maybe about religion, the very few things, as well as just 
anything and everything that feels good <laughs> is on the table here. Um, but I've always been like, what the hell is new age? Like, how would you define it? And then how do you walk through and evaluate what we kind of were just talking about as far as what resonates, what feels applicable, what feels valid? Hey friends, I'm changing the subject for just a second to invite you into an act of appreciation. If the Medicine Podcast has added value to your life in any way, maybe bringing more consciousness into your partnership, your spirituality, or the products that you choose to have in your house, we would be so grateful if you could take two minutes to write a review in Apple Podcasts. And because this means so much to us, we will send you some of our favorite products to say a big thank you. Here's what you do. When you write your genuine five-star review in Apple Podcasts, before you push submit, take a screenshot and email that to themedicinepodcast at gmail.com. Remember, medicine does not have an E on the end. Themedicinepodcast at gmail.com. Along with your name and shipping address, we will then personally send you a special surprise thank you. It could be Real Mushrooms, Organifi, King Coffee, Keon, or even Immune Intel AHCC. It means that much to us. Cheers and love. Oh, that's such a good question. Um, you know, I what's kind of funny to me about the term New Age is that it's used mostly in a pejorative way. Typically, when people use that term, they're saying new age, uh, yeah. you know, and it's kind of funny to me because it's like, wait, doesn't everyone say like, if only we could come into a new <laughs> level of awareness about ourselves and the world in this connective way, but everybody's focused on themselves and making money and the corruption, these politicians, we, if we could have a better world if we just had some new understanding of it. And I'm going, this, we're so close, guys. Um, so it's unfortunate to me that it's so, uh, it gets the dregs usually. But, um, you know, I think it, it, it actually does have, there, in terms of historical scholarship aspect, um, does have a moment, which I do write about a little bit. I don't go into it in great detail, but, um, I talk about how, for example, when the Enlightenment era um, comes about in the realm of science and kind of reason, the age of reason, um, what happened to religion was that essentially re religious people either went deeper into the exoteric or deeper into the esoteric. They became more fundamentalist. This is where you have the Amish, from the Amish to the Wahhabis. And the Wahhabis are kind of the uh, antecedent to modern day Islamic fundamentalists. Um, that that though, those movements all came out post Enlightenment era at, from a place of fear, and the mystics were also rejuvenated because I think a lot of the mystics saw uh, some parallels in some of the discoveries of science and i would argue that the pendulum swung for those people at based out of love um and you know i think the, i mentioned emerson and thoreau the american transcendentalists i have a little kind of fun little list in the book um around kind of 
what brought New Age about. Um, the German idealists were a group of philosophers that were kind of reading the Vedas and talking about the infinite potentiality of man. Um, Blavatsky and the theosophists, so the theosophy as a, a kind of society of intellectuals in the late 1800s in Europe. Um, there's a, there was a movement called New Thought, which is the precursor to um, Christian science and kind of really almost in a lot of ways, modern day self-help and self-development, your Napoleon Hills and Neville Goddard's and Joseph Murphy's guys who are now kind of coming back on in spiritual Instagram, which is kind of cool. Um, Freud and Jung, uh, you know, the advances in psychoanalysis, uh, psychology, and, um, you know, that's a whole nother podcast because there's so much to those guys. Um, but what's interesting is Jung kind of became more of a mystic later in life he really actually even became gnostic in some ways in the red book most most people understood who understand carl jung know his early stuff kind of the archetypes and the collective unconscious and psyche and things like that synchronicity um but his later years are he goes off in a cool way um on kind of gnostic cosmology and mysticism um there was another guy named edgar casey who was a Christian mystic who was called the sleeping prophet. He would go into, he'd go to sleep, take naps and he would like talk. <laughs> and he had, there's 14,000 channeled readings. A lot wow. of this stuff fills out um, the reincarnation. He talks about, um, you know, so he introduced terms like auras, soulmates, mm. holistic healing. Um, a lot of those terms come from Edgar Casey. Uh, 20th century physicists, that's also probably another podcast. Um, but you know, the from Einstein to Max Planck to Heisenberg, you know, these guys are analyzing the technology and their sophistication gets this to gets them to a level to really understand that matter again doesn't quite have the solidity that we think it does. Um, the kind of atoms are only empty space and the observer effect of quantum physics. Um, I'd also point to Unitarianism, which is really my fave brand of Christianity that you use. Um, they tend to be very open, see Jesus as a human being, not crazy about original sin, uh, et cetera, as a church, which is pretty, pretty cool. Progressive Christians, um, religious academics. So Max Mueller, uh, was a translator, a lot of Eastern sources, uh, William James, who was a very uh, prominent Harvard psychologist, America helped, they kind of helped legitimize the mystical experience. Um, Gurdjieff was an Armenian and Greek mystic philosopher in the early 1900s, who was interesting alongside of the Hindu Swamis and Buddhist monks coming to America. Um, kind of all of those things together are really like the bullet, my little bullet points of like what kind of brought about new age, um, you know, alongside, of course, the beat authors, Kerouac, Ginsburg, uh, Burroughs, and certainly the counterculture movement, psychedelia, right. sexual liberation, um, etc. So, you know, there's kind of all those things alongside of the ancient mystic traditions. You know, Sufis in Islam, Kabbalah and Judaism, Gnostics and Christianity. You know, a lot of these ideas aren't necessarily new. Some of them are very old. So, um, 
you know, I'm happy kind of from an academic or a scholarly standpoint to point to all those aspects of like what brought about new age. And I think also like just, you know, even more plainly, just the internet, um, you know, it now that we're able to look up all these yeah. things and see, oh, wait, the Bible has some discrepancies. Oh, you know, um, kind of the unraveling a lot of the tradition, a lot of the fundamentalism um, from technology and global exchange of information. All of that together created this term, which is also hard to define. Like, mm -hmm. what does New Age really mean? It's like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I mean, I think it's fair to say, like, people have, like, called me New Age. Like, it's 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 a category I'm not opposed to being associated with whatsoever. Um, but, yeah, it's nebulous. It's hard to pin down. And, you know, just like the religious issues that we talked about earlier, you know, it's like New Age spirituality um, is not free of egoistic you know insensitivity narcissism um trauma and even at worst abuse uh you know Relation. in a variety of ways yeah and and hedonism to an extreme yeah. i mean there's a lot and, and and i think part of that is because there's an aspect of like pent-up religious trauma that then finds new age and has this kind of liberating effect that's not necessarily dealing with that in a healthy way and so um yeah it's a complex thing but i think ultimately i think it's good you know i think in general i think it's positive um and i think also granted i'm also a white man and there's some accusations that new age is appropriation-y mm -hmm. um which which is true in some cases you know i think cultural appropriation is an issue um but the definition itself is essentially it means taking the concept without acknowledging and so all day long in my work what i'm trying to do is point to the source mm -hmm. uh, you know i'm trying to cite this comes from this tradition this comes from this teacher this teaching etc and so you know i'm not immune to anything but i do my best to um make sure that i'm honoring and i and i do i have a real sincere reverence for uh where this stuff comes from so you know i think that's how we as quote unquote new agers address the issue with appropriation by really sincerely honoring revering and supporting those cultures that this stuff comes from yeah beautiful man that that sums up really amazingly like what what this space involves and and i've definitely got a few notes to uh even look deeper as to some of the history behind it. I think that we're in this phase of the internet and of the social media spiritual influencer, and you've kind of got your checklist. You've even seen the memes of you know what you need to have in your uh, in your house to be new right, age, right, right. and crystal and the starter kits and like and some of that stuff's rad, right? Like I I, I tend to enjoy it, um, but I've also found as there was the this is the bright and shiny realm of salvation or or purpose oneness. oneness i've also found that the same charlatans and the same players that were in religion are underneath the stones in spiritual the spiritual community and whether it's the spiritual fuck boy or whether it's the uh snake oil salesman just release your chakras girl yeah <laughs> right. so you gotta work on that root chakra right it's like uh, 
the same players are here, and uh, we're also in this this phase of of capitalism where you know some argue yeah. this is very late stage, and you'll get any and all attempts to make a dollar, um, even if it's you know manifest the man of your dreams, manifest the mansion yeah. of your dreams. And what would you say to those who are maybe stepping out of uh, their religious backdrop, or even one like myself who who spent quite a quite a few years in an scientific materialistic agnostic realm, where maybe even the last three or four years has nudged them out of that to find some other community to to align with purpose and meaning, and have stepped into this spiritual community. What would you advise uh, for someone who is looking and seeking to keep a healthy level of practicality, um, a healthy level of you know skepticism as it pertains to embarking on this wild, wild west of the spiritual community? Yeah, it's a great question, and I hope I can answer it. Um, I, you know, one thing we we haven't really talked about today, which is bizarre because we've covered so much great stuff um you guys have asked awesome questions thank you um there's a there's a spiritual document that i very much admire it's i write about it in the last few chapters of the book um it's called the course in miracles and it might be familiar to your audience marianne is the course teacher 2024 which is somewhat bizarre that there's an a course in miracles teacher running for president but anyway <laughs> it's a fairly obscure so when she ran, when she started running for president, um, and of course, in miracles is a non-dual text. So back to the idea within mystic philosophy, it's the idea that this this world is a dream. There's only one of us. I mean, it's psychedelic in some ways. And the course in miracles community, when she said, "I'm running for, uh, you know, to be to get to bring up the love and connect people, all this stuff," half of the community was like, "This is great. We need a spiritual politician. This is what we need." And the other half goes. What world is she trying to save? Yeah, just yeah. pretty funny, but yeah, um, you know, it's it's a nice, um, it's a really what what of course miracles does really well is it points out essentially what it calls the, is the ego versus the Holy Spirit, and the term the definition that you guys said in, of Holy Spirit in Christianity isn't that dissimilar from how of course miracles uses it um, in that it's. I think that the definition officially is the memory of our oneness mm. is like the Holy Spirit. It's like the memory of our unity in God. Um, so not that far off. And um, and the ego is the dictator. The, e the ego is the, you know, and, and the traditional Christian view of like the red devil and the white angel. And, you know, it's in all of these <laughs> systems, right? Um, the Buddha is tempted by Mara and the Buddha nature, you know, I mean, there's the duality of those two voices, the intuition and the, you know, demanding the personality that, that wants, um, you know, I think whenever I'm trying to be discerning, I think to answer your question around like validity or, you know, someone worth following, it's like, for me, it's like, which one are they listening to ego or holy spirit or also higher self is another kind of new age words that's kind of hindu or capital s self mm -hmm. the self and the ego um the i and the me um you know when when there and there's there's christian pastors 
that are voices of the Holy Spirit or the higher self. And there's Christian pastors that are voices of their ego. And there's new age spiritual teachers that are voices of the higher self or Holy Spirit. And there's what their voices of the ego. And so I found it helpful to kind of define characteristics of both. I don't know really if I do that much in the book. By the end of the book, you should get it. But the idea is that the ego is always wanting something externally. The ego um, is special. Um, the ego, you know, needs validation. The ego is dis- disappointed. There's ways to find out if you're in your ego mind. And then, and my friend actually James and Craig wrote a book called Shit Your Ego Says. It's pretty funny. Versus the Holy Spirit, the higher self, everyone is special equally. There is no difference. You know, that's the least of these you do for me. Um, the higher self needs nothing from anyone. You know, that's unconditional love is, is a, that's that same energy. So, you know, I think when you're, if you're out there and you're listening to someone, if you hear them talk about how amazing they are, you know, be careful. Um, because that's probably an egoic, you know, kind of narcissistic person that's using their charisma and their knowledge of all this stuff. Um, you know, me personally, I, the way I kind of, so I've had some people that are in this space say like, how do you deal with like, quote unquote, teaching or whatever. And like, I don't even say I'm a teacher. I say I'm a writer, uh, you know, or an author. I've accepted that title now, but um, my goal is to be a billboard to the real masters. (laughs) You know, I'm trying to share, uh, you know, Yogananda and Thich Nhat Hanh and Ramana Maharshi and Anandamaya Ma and, you know, beings who are much higher along than me. That's my job, you know, at least right now is to be, uh, I, I'm, I'm a billboard for the buffet. I'm, I'm, it's $4.99 on Tuesday. That's my <laughs> job. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, that's really the only way I can answer it. But, um, but yeah, I think, you know, being discerning is is important because there's a lot of folks that come out of you guys' space like you guys did. And, and folks want to, you know, take advantage of folks. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of shamans that are, that t- you know, they take PayPal and yep. yeah. yeah, be careful out there, guys. Yeah, yeah. It's a slippery slope. And, and um, you know, I'm just, you, you do a great job of, of profiling some of those names you mentioned and in, in, in Ram Dass and and others in your book. And the self promotion is clearly uh, lacking in in their work and what they've left uh, as an imprint into into this world and and I see that as the the red flag surely when there's exclusivity articulated when there's paywalls obviously we we exist in capitalism and it has to exist to a certain degree um, for there to be even growth or evolution on one's purpose or passion in many many lanes. But when it's paywall after paywall after next course to higher levels of consciousness, you know, start to start to take. Yeah, it. get enlightened in thirty days. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, yeah. it's that, that's part of the comedy of New Age. I think you yep. know, it's like the late stage marrying with it for sure. Right. right. Um, but with all of that, my friend, just just grateful for the link in the chain that you are. Um, I am so appreciative of your tone and your personality because it feels within reach for many of us 
And um, I am stoked to see what else you do. I, I hope that anybody and everybody listening uh, has some fun with this book because I surely did. And it prompted lots of questions and lots of further inquiry uh, that I think is just scratching the surface for myself at this at this point. But um, yeah, man, I'm just really, really stoked for, for what you are doing in the world and, and appreciative that it's impacting my life so much. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. You guys, um, I'm, I'm so blown away by you guys and, you know, folks in you guys' community that have come out of really a tough environment. And it was, I sending empathy and peace for those massive transitions of like hardcore evangelical to hardcore scientific materialism, you know, and now coming into this one. You know, those are really massive shifts and it takes a lot of courage and openness and trust and just a lot of beautiful qualities to get where you guys did. So thank you for demonstrating that potential for humans that are stuck in, you know, deeper levels of conditioning and fear uh, because it is possible um, as well. And so reciprocating back to you guys and and uh, yeah, may, may all of our mirrors be polished. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Need that on a t-shirt. <laughs> Thank you so much. I will just echo Chase. Just very grateful for for your work and just um the sharing uh with our audience. And uh, you know, we we it's like a passion for us to discover people like yourself, where it's like, oh, man somebody just give this guy a microphone please because this is like it's almost like the reluctant leader it's like i hey I, i'm just a student i'm just alongside you guys like <laughs> you know like i'm in this too and that's sort of the the approach that we like to take maybe in the health space or the the really conscious conscious relationship space is like yo we're not teachers like we're in this we still are in the junk just yeah. like you guys and we're all just trying to learn together we might be a few steps ahead but like we're in it too and so I just appreciate that approach a lot. And um, coming around to our last question that we ask every guest on the medicine, um, medicine is all about sort of discovering and leaning into these medicines um, that, you know, don't necessarily come in an orange bottle, but help us to create more consciousness in our life and to create deeper relationships all around. So what for you feels like medicine right now in your life? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I, you know, we've covered a lot of like intellectual stuff, which is really fun for me. And, um, and at the same time, the mind can't, won't get it. Uh, you know, it is beyond the mind. The mind is just a helpful starter to the experience of a true spiritual practice to the embodiment and really to love. So, you know, I think whenever I get too caught up in all of the mapping, which I tend to do, um, just reminding myself that almost like you erring into love is tends to be the right medicine for me. It's like in, for myself, for others, and not in like a doormatty way, right? Because you still have to have your own sense of discipline and boundaries and so on. But 
having a sense of love and kindness. There's a really great quote from uh, Huxley, who said, Aldous Huxley, who said something like, he was like 70 or 80, and he's like, I'm, they were like, what's your little piece of advice? And he was like, he's like, I'm very embarrassed to share that after all my studies, really like the best thing I can say is just try to be kinder <laughs> to yourself and other people. <laughs> so, you know, I feel that, you know, it's like after all these explorations, it's like just being loving and being kind. It's like, that's, that's the way to do it. So, yep. Yep. The yeah. cliches are, are, are so legit yeah. when you actually just yeah. sit and, and meditate on them for a minute. Yeah. And, if you yeah. don't know where to start, you know, back to our point of like, where, where do you go? How do you do this? How do you go deep? Yeah. If your spiritual practice is being kind to yourself and others that can take you a lifetime to master. So just start there. If you don't know where to start, it's, you know, I'll do this myself yeah. and I'll intellectualize and I'll try to be rationalizing everything and mapping and, and putting architecture towards meaning and then <laughs> stare at my partner for 60 seconds in her eyes. And then that mm -hmm. explains all of the gaps that fills in meaning. And it, and I no longer am interested in having the definition because it's felt. And um, hell yeah, man. Beautiful. Where, where can people find more of you? You have a great social media uh, people should follow because you're incredible reels. Um, yeah, and, I'm and on Instagram and TikTok. Um, Original Sin is a lie is my handle, and um, yeah, it just means you're inherently good. That's right. <laughs> Not trying to be an edge lord here. I'm just trying to remind people. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks, uh, we enjoyed this so much, and I know a lot of our listeners did. Guys, if you enjoyed the episode, please share it to someone you love. Send, send it to them directly or share it to your Instagram story. These are the conversations that have the potential to just plant a seed and, and start a ripple of love and kindness as we're talking about, which is world-changing, life-changing. Thank you for being here. Thank you for hanging with us, and we'll talk to you next time. Go spread some light. Okay, bye. Hey friend, thanks for listening. Did you hear anything today that expanded your mind, made you laugh, touched your soul, or caused you to think differently about this topic? I hope so. I invite you to share this episode with someone you love. It takes 30 seconds and has the potential for a great ripple effect. Our world needs more people having real, honest, and open-minded dialogue on big topics. And you never know, you may just change their entire day. We love you and appreciate you being here with us. Cheers.